Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. I am your host, Philip Recheck. In this podcast, I am seeking to share some of the interesting thoughts and ideas of people in my own locale. And in the grandiose style of grandiose introductions, I hope to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. Okay, a couple of quick housekeeping things. In this conversation, I sit down with Cynthia Hunt. She is co-owner of Wellspring Counseling here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. She is a active woman business owner in our community, as well as a social worker, a counseling social worker. We talk about the general mental well-being of our community, as well as what we can do as parents to support the kids as they go through their crazy kid phase and help them work through that. Um, But with that said, I am always looking for suggestions for other people to interview. I've pretty much run through all the people who owed me a favor. So I look forward to uh, getting out there and meeting some new people. With that said, hope you enjoy my interview with Cynthia Hunt. Hello, thank you for joining me today. I am here with Cynthia Hunt. Cynthia, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Phil. It's nice to be here. Yeah. it's You know, when I'm searching around for experts, that uh, <laughs> you made it to the, the top of the list. Uh, That's good. With that said, I like to start all of my podcasts by talking about your childhood. And what were some things when you were a kid that you really enjoyed doing, whether it was a game or things you like to play with. What do you remember from your childhood that was vivid? Well, um, I grew up in a very poor family, but we were really lucky to live um, on a lake. And so a lot of my favorite things had to do with swimming, skating, snow, um, not this much snow, but snow, and just being outside a lot. That was probably a big part of it. Um, I did also like to play with Barbies. I think I did that for a little too long after my child was up, but let's not tell anybody, okay? <laughs> no, no one, yeah. no, no one right. listens to this, so you're yeah, fine. You're right. fine with yeah, that. Yeah. We'll edit it out uh-huh. later. Good thing. <laughs> I like roller skates a lot, too. That was a big thing for me, was to try to roller skate in my little neighborhood. Have you thought about getting back into the roller derby scene at all? No. No? I, not. I, uh... Even contact in softball was worrisome for me, so I had to quit that, too. So. And you have several siblings, right? I have two brothers and two sisters. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you are, where do you fit into the mix of those? I'm the oldest of five. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Rule follower, if you believe in birth order, anyway. Yeah, I might have to have you talk to my wife on that one, because <laughs> she's got some theories on that that right. she's tested. Mm-hmm. But with that said... Uh, so did you find yourself being mother hen as you were growing up, or was it everybody was it a free for all in your family in um, terms of there were moments of all of that. I yeah. think a lot of a lot of it was that if you're in a big family like that, um, the loudest and the most obnoxious got what they wanted. Well the double for you then. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, but there were times where, you know, I felt bad for my youngest siblings just because of the pecking order, they would lose out a lot. So I was uh, very close to them Good. growing up. Good. Yeah. And then you, and this is in 
eastern central Wisconsin. You might grow Benina, which you know. is near the, all the uh, paper mills. Yeah. Yeah. And you end up at UW Eau Claire. Yes. And what was it? Because I'm going through this now. If, if you can remember, like, why UW Eau Claire? What drew you to this? Well, I actually really loved Minneapolis. I was going to go to the U of M. Mm -hmm. Um, but right before I was ready to leave, I got super scared of the size of the campus and it just seemed like such a big step. So I ended up taking a year off and working and having an apartment and absolutely hating working full time. <laughs> at a, I worked at a, a pallet shop. Um, a pallet shop? Uh -huh. You made wood pallets or deconstructed wood pallets that were from the um, paper mill industry. Yeah. So it was really awful, dirty, yeah. filthy work. You were making, really you were hard. like, and you were making pallets? I would usually like work saws to cut them all apart. Okay. You know, um, that was one of my jobs. So after that experience, I decided I should really go back to college. And um, I knew people at Eau Claire mm -hmm. and um, a guy I was dating was coming here too. So I had seen it. I'm like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Right. The relationship didn't last long, but the, yeah. my, my love affair with Eau Claire did. So. Good. And while here, uh, majored in sociology? Or no? No, actually, it was, it's a, a funny story of failure. It gets you to where you need sure. to go. I um, didn't really fail, but I was close to, um, I wanted to be in the education uh, program and, and specialize in special education. But it was really crowded at the time. Teachers were really in demand here. And so, um, and my grades weren't stellar. And a, a, someone that, I think it was my advisor, had said, you know, maybe you should look at other majors because it'll be a while before I could probably get in. And so I took journalism, social work, and I think history classes. And then I decided that I really liked social work. It okay. kind of resonated with me. So I just sort of, that was my fallback option. That's really good to know because, okay, so I was at Madison. You know, we're similar mm -hmm. in timeline. Yeah. And I was looking to be an education major. Mm -hmm. uh, very competitive program there as well. Yeah. And they said, you know, your grades aren't good enough to get in here. You should transfer to Eau Claire. Like, they actually said to transfer to another school if I wanted to become a teacher. And so, had I done that, I would have transferred to Eau Claire and still not been able to get right. into it. The education program at that time was very, very competitive. Yeah. There was a lot of people flocking here for that reason. Right. I remember that was one of the biggest things that most people I knew I came here for was that. Was that. Yeah. But then they couldn't get anybody into the program. Cause they only, I think they only had so many slots yeah. per year. Yeah. The teaching assistant roles, or the not the teaching assistant, but student the teaching. student teaching. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But it worked out. Good. And then, while at the university, you met your husband, or was that after your? So I, we, uh, um, part of my for social work, we had to do an internship, and I ended up last minute picking Sacred Heart Hospital, and. Um, a friend of mine had that spot prior to me. So he was like, yeah, it's a great internship and lots of flexibility and you're not micromanaged. So I thought, oh, I'll apply. I was the only one who applied, so I got that spot. And I really liked it. And then I ended up meeting my husband like on my second or third day there, but I okay. obviously didn't. Yeah. A, there's a funny story that I that he tells, and my version is very different. <laughs> um, but we, um, we, we met and then started dating at the end of my internship. Okay. When I was leaving. And what was it that drew you into social work? Like, as besides you were, that I, the, the education thing didn't work yeah, out. Besides the default <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, program. I, um, I, I didn't know it at the time. I think it was sort of um, like the social justice piece really mm -hmm. was kind of something that I connected with. 
And one of my professors early on was from Berkeley, and she was a strong feminist. And there was something about just the things, the way she taught things, the way she challenged you about thinking about different things that mm -hmm. kind of um, just got me to want to do more in that in the, in the coursework. And so okay. that's kind of started it. So you graduate, stay in Eau Claire, marry, and then later on you decide to go back and become a or were you clinical? How does that process work? So I, I in, guess the, in, so in, I got my bachelor's degree, and then when I met my husband, we went on our first date. He's like, "Oh, by the way, I um, signed a contract to go back to North Dakota, where he is from." And I'm thinking, <laughs> "This is just a date. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves here." And then ended up that we did stay together, so we moved to North Dakota. But um, we lived in a small town, and there weren't any any jobs really. So I was bored. I had nothing to do except walk my dog a lot. So then I decided, well, the Dairy Queen is hiring, and that just didn't seem like something I wanted to do. So I applied for graduate school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the uh, I got into graduate school there at UND. At UND and in Grand Forks, and then. I, right after I got accepted, I took a job at the hospital there and nursing home and worked, worked in a very rural hospital setting for a few years. And then we decided that, boy, Eau Claire was really nice. It's a little warmer, so yeah. we moved back. Wow, it's crazy to think that people move here for the weather. <laughs> sure, it's this year. That's kind of a bad move. I should have looked at, like, I don't know. Yeah, anywhere else. Yeah, anywhere else. Yeah. No, it's, it, is a, it is a great place to live and as we both done raise kids here it's, mm -hmm. I yeah couldn't beat it uh, as far as that goes all right at what point now, now just kind of talk me through if you're a, if you're a social worker where does that what what, what does a, a clinical social worker do versus just a bachelor in social work or, right so when, I, when you get your master's degree in social work counseling any of those things you have to have especially in Wisconsin you have to have um a lot of hours, 3,000 hours, I think is the current thing, 3,000 hours of post-degree experience. So um, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do that right away. So I worked with my master's degree in a healthcare setting again, and then had met um, a psychologist there and decided to start doing my clinical hours with him. Okay. Because um, I, I liked that um, setting of, of evaluating people in the diagnosing part of it. Um, and then I decided that, you know, maybe I should try counseling because it's a piece of, of, of social work that I never thought I would do. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I enjoy that. So that's kind of why I did that. And because, again, just pardon my ignorance on this. Uh, being just married once. Mm -hmm. Just one ignorance. I get one. I get yeah, one pass. Mm -hmm. but, okay. So April's a uh, social psychologist, research psychologist, mm -hmm. not clinical, which people always confuse when she says yes. it's a psychologist. What is the difference between a clinical a uh, social worker and, say, a clinical psychologist uh, right. in terms of the roles they play. Uh, well, they make more money. Well, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, but what, what they they um, have a very important component to um, mental health as well. So they generally do a lot of testing mm -hmm. on people and, and look at the results of that. They also um, do a lot more, uh, I'd say, lengthy, in-depth evaluations, whether it's of children in a custody battle mm -hmm. or um, court proceedings for people that might um, 
have some type of mental health issues that are causing them to okay. you know, break the law or need guardianship or have okay. competency issues. That kind of thing. Okay. And then what is a clinical social worker's primary area of expertise? Or what, 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 what realms? So um, mostly what you, you're able to do is you are able to um, look at people and give them a diagnosis, similar to what a clinical psychologist would do. Um, but you also then do the, you know, use your skills to do counseling with them to try okay. to provide that treatment when someone does have some type of issue going on as well. And okay. there's a lot of different varied roles that a clinical social worker can do in different yeah. settings. School setting, hospital setting, you know, criminal justice. A lot of um, private companies hire clinical social workers mm-hmm. for different kinds of things too. So, Okay. And you, um, gosh, how many years has it been since you... Have, I know you first started out working for somebody or part of being part of mm-hmm. somebody else's mm-hmm. practice, and now you own your own practice or you're a co-owner with your own practice. Yep. So I've owned, um, been part of being an owner of a business since about 2011. Okay. Yeah, and that has been fantastic for the flexibility raising, you know, two teenagers now. Yeah. Um, having that. The ability to, to, to change my schedule when I need to, which is my good. I also feel like there's uh, the ability that we, we really strive to work to see people that don't have insurance mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people, especially a few years back, there was this like void where um, people that didn't have insurance weren't able to be seen by people very easily. So we kind of try to provide um, less expensive counseling to those that okay. group of people too. And now what is your focus personally and then within the practice in general? So my, I think for me personally, I currently, because I have teenage kids, I've yeah. tried to not see adolescents. I'm trying to see just adults yeah. and couples. I do a lot more couples work now, okay. which I really enjoy doing. I also like doing what you would call uh, consulting with like businesses that are struggling with uh, poor morale in a department or communication issues. So you go in and you assess the group of people and then try to implement a plan as to how they can change their functioning and their just their way of being, I guess, so that they can work better and yeah. more efficiently too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then as our practice, one thing we have done recently is we've tried to work more with the LGBTQ population, mm-hmm. um, especially transgender people or people that are considering transitioning because okay. there's another area where there's not a lot of people that provide services for people that are um, in transition or transgender. And how was, I know you said it offered more flexibility, but how was the transition from working for somebody to owning your own uh, your being co-owner of your own business was that difficult? Was it? Was it? What, what was it? What was that process like? And what? Uh, just in terms of setting it all up and getting her going. Well, that was really challenging. My partner Emily and I, we thought that it would it wouldn't be that hard, and it was it was not easy at all. I would say I'd say it was difficult. But it was well worth it. Um, there was a lot of pride and about setting something up and, and 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 having that ownership of it. There was a lot of 
trials and tribulations that came with it and having to work together in that way and figure out how we deal with conflict or just differences in, uh, uh, you know, addressing certain issues right. that came up. We are currently looking at merging with another company now because okay. having busy families, uh, we, we just, it's, it's been a challenge. So we're sure. probably going to move away from that model and work with someone else mm-hmm. in the future. So since you've been doing this 20, 2011, 2012, what are you seeing, uh, or, or over that time, have you seen any transitions or shifts within what is, what, what's ailing us in terms of uh, a community or a, I know you said you've moved into more um, LBGTQ community. Mm-hmm. Has there been any tr- transition or is it every day or are you still looking at every patient's an individual and then that is... We tend to talk about the trends every, you know, a couple times a year and talk about what we've noticed as a group. And one thing that's kind of been a constant is loneliness. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of very smart, very personable people walking around. Mm -hmm. They aren't making, like, social connections, you know? Yeah. And so that's something that I think... It, it, it would, there's a need here yeah. to have like more of a social network for people that don't know other people. And especially we've noticed women who, for some reason, you know, raise their children and have a career and then perhaps their marriage doesn't work out and then they, yeah. they never develop those relationships with friends. Yeah. So they don't know where to start. And yeah. That's something that I, I if I could have some type of resources to develop a group or uh, some type of platform for that would be my goal. This is, this is a good lead-in because I was going to want to talk about this anyway. What role, because I think we're playing the, like a giant psychological experiment with ourselves and our children's with uh, technology, right? Yeah. Uh, that both social media or mm-hmm. um, I mean, having teenagers at this point, it's crazy just compulsion to, for well, and not just kids, it's all of us. But my part-time job is actually a tech referee at home. I have an umpire <laughs> shirt I take out. Isn't it, isn't it funny to think when, when we were raising our kids, it was like, it was putting in the VHS of the Wiggles or something, or Barney at that point, when they were that small. But right. at least then, it was a 30-minute, and then you had to, you know, it, it was over. Right. Where was I the other day? I was... Oh, we, we, so we have a new dog. I don't know if we mentioned that we have a, we have a puppy. And I was at puppy class, and uh, one of the women there with her puppy had brought her two daughters, probably four and two and a half. And it was that instant when the kids started to get antsy, here, take the device, and then they, right. they were on that. just give them candy. Right. I'm just kidding. I, well, or we said, you know, we just lock them in a different room and say, you know, we'll come get you. Well, point. they daydream or think about <laughs> something else. You know? No, but what do you think in that terms of loneliness? I, I know that there is this Facebook. People who look at Facebook tend to be less happy the there more time is. you spend on Facebook. Yeah. So what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? What? Well, I've seen an increase in people that have um, definitely lower self-esteem and symptoms of depressive disorder because they are comparing themselves to their mm-hmm. peers at work or potential friends that they're not connecting to because they think that everybody has a better life right. than they do or their their weekend activities are much more exciting. Yeah. 
and it's really sad. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, Does it come into that? Does, does social, do the phones come into your practice? I mean, all does, the time. And, and in, in what way? Like, well, it depends on the age. I mean, there's people who can't literally, you can't do counseling with them sometimes because they're checking their phone. Yeah. Or they're wanting you to read their texts. Sure. So, yeah. You know, be and, warned if you have a therapist or, you know, your friend is a therapist, you might see what they're texting. You, you don't have a policy on that, on any of that? Like, or do you ask people to be like, hey, I'm right here. Talk to me. <laughs> I do that at home. Well, I... I think it's important to kind of weave it back into your sure. practice a little bit because you don't want to offend someone if they're not mm-hmm. ready. Just like someone that has a, a drinking problem, you don't want to, you know, talk to them about drinking when they're not ready to do right. that. And right. the same thing with a, a social media issue or being distracted by their phones during your session. You know, sometimes it's kind of a, maybe building rapport with that person first to reflect on it at a later time if you can. But it's not a matter of you sitting there and just texting them your questions as you're going through that. They're like, oh, okay, yeah. That might, well, there, <laughs> but there's a lot more therapy that's being done that way where okay. those people are, are using an app or they're texting the therapist. You know, here we don't do that because it's, you can't practice that way. The state of Wisconsin has very specific rules about how you practice but it is definitely something that's right there in front of you when you're seeing And are you seeing, is is that a topic of dispute within couples therapy when you do that? Yeah. Is it? it it's a still a symptom of a, of trust issues and, and, and being open and transparent with your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming out, though, because someone posted on Facebook something or you don't have their password and they're mm. hiding what they're putting on there. Sure. Or they're private messaging other people. That's definitely creeped into couples counseling. Okay. Yeah. And then taking it to, the, you know, like teenagers and kids. What, like you said, you're the police at home. But mm-hmm. from a, like a therapy sta- or from a, a counseling standpoint, you know, whether it's parents talking about their kids or it's the kids themselves, what do you what do you think? Like, what what can we do to help support our kids through this crazy transition time. I've gone back and forth on this as a parent myself because part of me really wants to give my my teenagers privacy, but when what they're looking at or um, the amount that they're using can be so harming to them Mm -hmm. that I I have to kind of go back and forth on it. So for a while I was like, okay, I'm going to let them have time we have rules about technology at our home, mm-hmm. but now it's like if I, if I, um, I should be able to go on your phone and look at what you've got on there because it's under my name. You're a minor, right? Um, you, you know, there are people that are trying to contact them through different types of social media. I think a couple months back, my daughter and I were looking at her Instagram thing. And, Sorry, I don't know the lingo because I'm not very good at the technology. But she had these people who were following her, and they were kind of, you know, creepy, creepy people. I'm like, you know, who is this person? You know, the school board does that to kids. <laughs> yeah, it's a new policy. <laughs> it ain't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I we've 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 changed. We've gone back and forth on it, but now we're just having. Our kids have to let us know what they're doing on their phones. And our phones, phones, any devices, always have to be in a main area. That's what we're doing right now. Okay. And um, 
I, I think what my, my kids being on their phones too much, I've noticed they've had far fewer and fewer social outings and contacts. Yeah. yeah. And that just saddens me. I know. I beg them to go, go do stuff, call up a friend, have them right. over, go out. Right. They, you know. We're doing it as adults too. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm much into social media. Oh, is that where you've been? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you can see my Tyndall account or whatever. <laughs> no, I but, but I, I think that it's just one more thing that can distract you from putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, or it's one, so for like April, it is one more way that she can be like, oh, wait, I have that task still left to do. Right. I, you know, as a reminder on her phone mm-hmm. that she can do it while we're in the car. Or I, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage technology. I mean, we're working on a, a mi- amazing technology platform that has no, has no cost of entry, essentially. And, yeah. But I think it gets back to your loneliness mm-hmm. point. That we we are increasingly lonely, uh, and how much do you think? How much of it do you think is a lack of meaning, or a, I don't even want to say meaning, but a lack of greater purpose uh, within our own lives or within? I think it, it's changed our goal setting. Like a lot of people don't know what they would like because they're kind of looking at what other people are doing mm, so much more too. That's a great point. So trying to develop personal goals with, you know, for what you really want, you know, that's inside you versus what you're seeing everybody else wanting to do. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have to say it, it is, it has been a help to some people too. So one of my specialties is working with people with chronic illness mm-hmm. um, or their the caregivers of someone that has a chronic or terminal illness. So for those people, they sometimes can find yeah. some some community um, based on what diagnosis they have or what mm-hmm. what 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 their um, role is at in the at that time in their relationship or in their family too. Mm-hmm. So it's I I you know I can yeah. see it both ways. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Kind of jumping off that a little bit, getting back to. Eau Claire's general psychological state. Uh-huh. Uh, this kind of feeds into, I'm kind of drawing on your expertise because your husband has worked in pain management for so long uh, as well. How, what are you seeing in terms of substance abuse, in terms of relationships and with uh, kids and so forth within the community? You know, growing up in Wisconsin, I think it's sort of shocking to recognize that um, people drinking is a way of life. I think sure. that's still a huge issue for us as I drink a beer with you. Socially. But it becomes so regulated or normalized in families, generation after generation, and that's not changed at all. Mm-hmm. There is some, uh, there is some, you know, more awareness of it. I think younger people are drinking a lot less in general, but I, I don't have the data to back that sure. up. But it's anecdotally what I've seen. In Eau Claire, I think we have this great community with lots of activities. I mean, that's kind of why we moved back here, is mm-hmm. having all of the, you know, you're close to rivers, you're close to the woods. Yep. There's all kinds of things you can do. And so when we do more things like that, we can replace substance abuse stuff a little bit with that too. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, but I do see maybe people that are struggling more with um, seri more serious types of addiction, like opioid addiction. I don't see those as much just because of the way our right. practice is. That's not your focus. And there's less resources for those people, too. So, sure. you know, I maybe see family members that, um, you know, wish there was more help for, for those people, too. Okay. What's your take on... I think the, the, the ship is sailing, or the, the, the wind is blowing in a, in a direction for legalization of marijuana uh -huh. within our community. Yeah. And I think I've been along, like, you know, if, if we look at our alcohol culture, as opposed to, say, a marijuana culture, you know, force of peace in many, in many regards. Yeah. But how do you think that will impact, say, the, the overall well-being of a, mental well-being of a community uh, if specifically thinking about the people who are most at risk or the people who either are psychologically at risk or the people who are um, just maybe down on their luck more so. Do you think that it will have much of a difference uh, if, if it were to become legalized or, or readily available? I, I don't think it will matter for a lot of those people. I think that they'll find it anyway if they're already at risk for sure. it. I think that even though it's not legal, yeah. There's a lot of people who um, use marijuana now. Mm -hmm. I also think that in other states where it is legal that I've been, I think they're functioning the way they normally are. In fact, some of those states, similar to Colorado, they're putting so much money back into um, their schools and treatment programs that we don't have here at all. So I could right. benefit more people right. by legalizing it. Um, and I... I I, I guess I don't think it'll have a huge impact necessarily. Yeah. It'll be kind of one of those things that five years after the fact will be like, wait, it wasn't legal ever? No, yeah. and you know, I I, um, I was reading a couple articles about chronic pain and then um, uh, I think it was a, brain, uh, chronic, a pain management specialist was talking and he had said, I would far rather prescribe patients to go smoke a joint or find edibles, then give them narcotics because right. the, the the one it's cheaper and two the lifelong yeah. repercussions of that are so different. Especially when you start amping up to things like fentanyl or right that are yeah. actually killing people right or people that um, are you know a lot of people that are um, that have chronic pain issues could be treated in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. instead of the narcotics. So it's, it's another, I think it's another way of treating them as well. So. Mm. I, I think it's more dangerous at this point almost to have it not be legalized and regulated um, to be able to say that the intoxicant levels are set at a certain standard or if they're regulated so they're not mixed with other things. I think right. that's where things can get really right. dangerous. Well, and, and the death rate from people using marijuana is nothing compared to um, people that have been prescribed, you know, prescribed medications that end up, they develop an addiction and yeah. end up overdosing on. When you are in with uh, clients, mm -hmm. um, and don't use names unless you really want to call somebody out on, on this. You know, if you just really have somebody you got a bone to pick with, or how do you get to that all right, this is what we should do in this situation, whether it's you go into a work environment or whether you go 
you're working with couples or an individual. At, at what point do you feel like, see, this is my problem. This is why I could never be a counselor because you'd say three words and I'd be like, no, 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 no. Here's, here's what we need to do with you. <laughs> this, is, this is your problem as opposed to sitting and listening for quite a while. Uh, how, how do you get there? Or is it, is it art? Is it science? Is it? Um, well, <laughs> yeah. no, how, people, the magician, the magician's some, trick has been told. Some people really want, really want you to give them advice and tell them what to do. They yeah. are wanting some sign or some permission from some entity. <laughs> if it's an owl sitting outside their bedroom Do you have night. a special switch underneath the table? You like, a light comes on and yeah. you're like, that's a sign. Here's a geese flying outside the window. No, it's um, it's the biggest thing with counseling um, is is building rapport, is getting having a relationship with these people first, Mm -hmm. finding out something about them, learning something from the person you're working with. Yeah, kind of gauge where they're at. Don't give advice. There's been a couple times where I'm like, I don't know if that's really a good idea. Yeah. When when we talk about what their goals are, if I know them well enough to say, this is the goal that you've been working on. So, you know, let's say it's a person that wants to save their marriage, and all of a sudden they're wanting to be Facebook friends with the you know, former <laughs> significant other partner. It's probably not a good idea. Yeah. But it's you know, there's a lot of humor and a lot. It's there's it's. It's really a, a, an enjoyable process, and people generally actually have a good time when they're in, right. in therapy. And do you, I'm assuming at some point you stop seeing these people. Like, you'll go through a session, and then eventually they will go away, right? It's really kind of a crummy business plan, because you, your goal is for them not to come in and see you. <laughs> right. But that is really what you do, is you want them to fulfill their goals, meet their goals, and not come back to Yeah. You. And that yeah. happens a lot. So, but really you're never you're never in the grocery store and like somebody like, hey, Cynthia, I stopped cheating on my wife. You know, something like that. I that, haven't had that happen okay. yet. Yeah. No. Well, they don't shop at festival, I guess. So. <laughs> okay. Right. Exactly. Go to Gordy's. <laughs> but people do come up and say hello or yeah. say things are better. You know, or I sometimes I think one of the most rewarding things is when someone will drop will write me a letter or a note or a yeah. card and. And just follow up. So that feels good. And even if it's not perfect outcome, you know, just kind of knowing where people go is right. kind of feels good too. So thinking about couple therapy specifically, like how well can you predict? Like, I mean, are you like, do you know within the first, you know, oh, the famous psychologist who can like talk, listen to somebody for five minutes and tell you if they're going to be together in three years? You know, like. Is that Gottman? Yeah, Gottman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. John yeah. Yes. But do you think. Do you have a pretty good, are you, like, you've done this long enough so that you have seen enough people to know. I'm the couple's whisperer. No. I don't. Do you really try, like, every couple is an individual, like, you're looking at people in that individual situation, and we're going to deal with this as a one, as everyone's a one-off, but, uh, but are there, or are there clear uh, cues, like you said, friending Facebook, old friends, yeah. girlfriends yeah. that you should avoid? Well, I think it's, it, it you have to try to assess where they're at are they are both people really wanting this to get better mm-hmm. you know, are they willing to change some of the things that they're doing right now to, to, to make the effort I think the effort on both parties is yeah. like a huge I also think valuing what their partner feels or thinks and not mm. minimizing it sure 
if anything that's a red flag for me is if someone devalues or minimizes yeah. their partner's feelings or beliefs, okay. um, even if it's very different than their own. So that's something where I'm kind of you know, worried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, but I've seen couples, you know, be days away from divorce and make it work. And maybe this I'm whacked on this, but most people come to therapy not because external circumstances are ruining their lives. It's because they are doing something, even if external circumstances are ruining their lives, but they are doing something themselves to make that situation worse or to make... Hmm. I see what you're saying. I kind of... Or, think, or do you just like to blame blame everybody? I, yeah. Are you a blamer? What are you fault. doing? Stop no. screwing it up. I think what happens is a lot of us, when we feel start feeling really um, sad, unsure, unsafe, even worried about things, we start to internalize stuff. We start to think everything is our fault. Mm-hmm. And if I was just a better person or a better wife or a better mom, this wouldn't be happening to me. Trying to, because sometimes it is external factors that yeah. are, are causing a person to have distress. But they think that they earned it or deserved it for some reason and that it, it this things should be happening to them. And so one of the things is to try to get them to see the big picture and see things a little bit differently so that they can look at external factors that are causing them to feel so sad or not be able to work their job or whatever Mm. too. So let's say you're feeling like you're going to get fired. You're worried about being fired from your job and you think it's you. But perhaps people do get fired or maybe you're... You know, it's a it's a toxic environment, and you're not fitting into that. Right. Um, you sh- you know, you're feeling like it's always you, but maybe there's something going on that company's looking at downsizing and they're not right. hiring new people or trying. To, you don't have the support needed to accomplish right. your job. You yeah. know, there's there's things like that that really do happen. But yeah. if it's happening to you, you tend to think it's your fault. Right. Most people do. And in that situation, what? How do you help? I mean, so say somebody in a toxic environment in their job, but they're, they're internalizing it. Is, is it just getting them to realize the situation they're in from an objective standpoint? Is that the first step? Yeah, trying to reframe what they're going through or how they see things and try to get them to understand, is there any other way that we can look at the situation? You know, is there a different perception that, um, you know, that someone could have? Mm-hmm. You know, and I even like will try to think about, you know, well, if your sister was in this situation, would you have the same thing, values or beliefs about her personally right. as you do yourself? Um, sometimes getting them to kind of walk it back and take a step back to look okay. at, you know, look at things. You know, and also trying to get, a, is it causing so much stress or anxiety or sadness that they're not sleeping or mm-hmm. eating right or, you know, thinking clearly, you know, sometimes yeah. getting those basic Self-care needs right. taking care of first can help right. them like look at something with mm-hmm. a different pair of eyes. Well, let's let's just talk specific needs or lack of support that you see in the community for the LBGTQ mm-hmm. community. Sure. Well, what first cued you into that, um, and and what do you think from uh, your practice you can you can contribute to that? I think one of the saddest things I've had to deal with as a counselor is receiving emails from 
teenagers that live in rural areas that cannot see a counselor and they're dealing with LGBTQ issues in a, in a rural, small community. And they're reaching out to someone they don't know an mm-hmm. hour or more away, wanting us to help. And their parents won't let them come to counseling yeah. or won't get them that help they need. There's a huge, I guess, lack of providers in our area. You know, Eau Claire has some, but there's still a lack right. of getting in to see people. And then to see people that are that are open and inclusive and want to help anybody that comes sure. through the door. So if that that was the kind of opened our eyes eyes to there's a lot of people out there that aren't being served. And then just having people come in and say, you know, I I couldn't get counseling here or there. I need I need to find someone that will work with me. That that I like over the I think four years ago, five years ago, we were seeing a lot of that. That there weren't a lot of counselors that um, were comfortable seeing people with LGBTQ populations. In the last podcast I did, I there's a gentleman in the sociology department who just published a book, uh, Gay Marriage Generation. I sat down with mm. him, and that was I think one of my biggest aha moments is just the how far we've come yeah. and how say, for a high school student, thinking about back to when I was in high school, like, my high school is probably a similar demographic, and it's pretty similar to what, say, Eau Claire would be growing up. How much more accepting uh, these, these, not that there's still not bigotry and racism, or, uh, but, but just how, how that kids can be accepted for who they are more so now than ever they could before. Mm-hmm. But then you take that out to, say, a rural environment, or you take that to a surrounding community. And I think, I, could, I imagine that's still a very tricky, uh, tight tightrope that some kids are walking in terms of, you know, do they come out, do they not come out, do they tell their parents, do they not tell their parents. Like, right. Last summer, I went to the Pride Parade with my son, mm-hmm. who came out a couple years ago. And the Pride Parade was filled with families, with you know, yeah. all these families. And it was more of a family event than I was envisioning. It was, yeah. it was really affirming to see that this is such, you know, that there's a, so much, um, it's changed so much since when I was, yeah. you know, in high school. I still remember, I still have nightmares about what it's like to be a teenager. You know, it's just so, I really feel for kids nowadays, any teenager with social media, right? Boom! It's you're. It's always on. You're always there, but then to take sexuality or gender, something that's outside the standard heterosexual type of approach, it'd be so difficult to be up against that. Yeah. Times. One thing I think that that's you know I, I think a struggle is that you want again this might help kids who are isolated in a rural community being. Um, you know, gay or lesbian or um, questioning their gender or yeah. um, their sexual identity is that they can connect with kids then, right. um, you know, through social media, which, again, there's that, like, you know, double-edged sword, right. like, it's great. but it's, it's, So that has been probably been a helpful thing to a lot of kids that feel like no one's like me, and then they turn on their phone and like, yeah, there are. A lot of people yeah. like me. So yeah. It's kind of neat, too. Yeah, it's cool. Still trying to find anybody like me, but, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> Um, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna never. happen. Never. Never gonna happen. I gotta go to Mexico to find people. Like <laughs> okay. Vegas. Let's let's just kind of wrap things up here. Sure. What 
would be your advice to say parents or what's something that people could do to support the overall mental health of either their family or themselves or mm -hmm. the community? Well, that's a it's, lot. Yeah. That's a ton. Just yeah. in one, one it, sentence. In one word. <laughs> I, I think, again, inclusion to everybody, you know, regardless of um, what your economic situation is, what your, um, you know, background or identity is, I think that would be a big thing. Mm -hmm. I also think just more opportunities throughout the whole city would be a big thing, socially, especially. Connecting. Yeah. Okay. The other thing maybe is to have more um, incentives for providers to come to our area so that mm. we can have more um, mental health providers in general. Whether it's, I think we could definitely benefit from more psychiatrists, more psychologists, yeah. you know, maybe more of a presence in the schools and so it's not mm. such a uh, disjointed setting for right. your um, system to, you know, for people to get help. So that, and, and yeah, that would be. Just a couple of things. I could go on. Fantastic. I could go on. Solved it all. Yeah. Check right. it off the list. Right. Well, with that, uh, Cynthia, let me first say, wonderful to see you again. Um, and we'll do, I'll do another podcast in three or four years, and I'll call you, call you back in Great. for it. And, and that'll be that'll be good. I'll be doing my, like, second or third career as a barista <laughs> or something then, probably. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. But thank you so much yeah. for uh, coming on, and... Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks. For, thanks for supporting the community. Yeah, thank you. All that. right. Thank you for listening to Dialogue on Dialogue Podcast. Well, it's no surprise, you see, that you've heard about me. But if I'd not did what I'd done, Ciao.